You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead on The Exchange. Elon Musk becomes Twitter's biggest shareholder, disclosing a 9% stake worth almost $3 billion. Twitter shares soaring almost 27%. And Dan Clifton is here to explain why the upcoming midterms make now the perfect time for Musk's involvement with the company. And Kathy Wood warning the Fed is playing with fire, calling it a mistake to raise rates as curves are inverting and pointing to possible recession. Larry Lindsay is here to take the other side. Plus, are these the best or the worst of times for financial stocks? And which should you bet on, traditional banks or fintech? We'll get to all of that. But first, let's get a check on these markets. I see the Dow trying to hold on to a gain. It's up five points right now as we try to start the second day of the month uh, straight with positive gains, I should say. So we were down more than 200 at the lows. Dow's up seven. S&P's up 19. The Nasdaq's up 212 points, by far the outperformer, flying one and a half percent today. We'll get more on that in a bit. The 210 yield curve remains inverted, although the gap is narrowing slightly. We'll have more on this later as well. It's down by about five basis points. And the stock of the day is Twitter, on pace for its best day ever after regulatory filings showed Tesla CEO Elon Musk taking a 9% stake in the company and makes him the largest shareholder in the stock, which he's heavily criticized for what he says is its failure to uphold free speech principles. Twitter, by the way, now up almost 29% to $50 a share. The big question is how much near-term influence will Musk really have? Joining me now is our very own Steve Kovac, along with Axios media reporter Sarah Fisher. Great to have you guys both here. Sarah, let's start with what we know about the influence Musk with a portion, a shareholder portion this size can exert. Well, the real influence comes from the fact that investors think it might one day go from being a passive investment to something much more active, potentially a buyout. And investors, you noted the stock is way up are excited about that because Twitter has been rather stagnant for the past few years. While its competitors are getting ahead in things like Web3 and the metaverse, even subscriptions, Twitter has dipped its toes into those things, but it hasn't really made massive, massive progress. I think investors are excited about the potential shakeup here, although I would argue in the short term that passive stake isn't going to wield too much influence. We haven't even heard Elon Musk comment on this yet. We haven't heard many comments from Twitter, Steve, no. uh, from Musk. Everyone well, we got loved- something from us. We got an LOL high. True. Yes, <laughs> that's the comment from us. Well, what about, I mean, how does Jack Dorsey feel about this? What, how long ago did he leave the company and now? And he had, a few months ago. And he only has, what, a 2 or 3% stake? Right. And, well, here's the thing. You would think that Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey are kind of aligned in, in what Sarah is just describing. And we know the current CEO, Parag Agawal, is also in, in line with that vision. So they're good there. With what vision? The, the Web3 and the uh, the decentralization version of Twitter that what they're building. What does that mean? <laughs> I think uh, Nilay Patel explained it really well on TechCheck. It basically means like they can create these separate versions of Twitter that's not controlled by Twitter itself. So you can basically write your own policies on top of that. So if you oh. want, if Elon Musk wants his like crazy free speech, anything goes version of Twitter, he can like write it on top of that. That's kind of the theory. Or, you know, what we've seen so many people doing from the the true social Trump-backed thing all the way down to Gab from a few years ago, people try to create these, like, far-right or free speech, anything goes, versions of Twitter, and they fail horrifically every time. But I'm surprised, and I'm glad, I mean, it's a good point, that's why I wanted to dwell on it for a moment, that that Musk and the current CEO, or certainly Dorsey, would be aligned on anything. I mean, they seem politically so different, Dorsey and Musk. Sure, politically, yeah. I, I wonder, does Twitter really want to open the door to that kind of 
change to a platform that's basically part of the kind of traditional media landscape at this point. It right. leans generally left and kind of plays by all the same rules. And, and this would be a, a real big departure for them. I'm going to push back on the leaning left thing because he, here's the thing why these like conservative versions of Twitter fail so often. It's because what's the conservative version of Twitter, Kelly? It's Twitter. What's the conservative version of Facebook? It's Facebook. You can find your own niche within there, and that's you know kind of my theory why these don't work out so well. So it's interesting to see Musk say, hey, I'm going to come in and just buy this 9% stake in the existing platform sure. and make the change from within. No, I, I agree, Sarah, with Steve's point that the rivals have not gained any traction. However, the problem with censorship, whether it was the Hunter Biden story or other, you know, they kicked Trump off the platform for crying out loud. Is Musk going to try to bring him back on, or would decentralized Twitter allow for that kind of turn? Would they really, would it really look different than it does today is my question. Well, I think what's interesting, you noted this, is that Jack Dorsey and Elon Musk in a way want the same thing. In moving towards a decentralized platform, you take away the controls from the few and you give it into the hands of the many. Now, what would that look like? It would require the community to start policing and creating rules for the platform. And Twitter has experimented with this. They introduced something called Birdwatch, which is sort of community moderation of content on the platform. I don't exactly know what that would look like because to date, the only big platform that has that is Wikipedia. And there's still a lot of problems with Wikipedia, despite the fact that there are a lot of advantages as well that's run actually through a nonprofit foundation. We've never seen a major social platform be completely governed by the masses. So unclear what that is going to be. I will say, if you take a big picture look, though, at Twitter for investors that are watching this show, this has been such a tumultuous time for the company. First, you had Elliott Management coming in as an activist investor, essentially forcing Jack Dorsey, their old CEO, out. Now, less than a quarter in, you have this new and you know major investor outside voice also one of your biggest platform users coming in potentially threatened to shake it up maybe buy out the platform if you are the ceo of twitter right now it must be very hard to think about the core tenets of your business product innovation monetization when you're trying to deal with all these corporate maneuvers, it's not a great place to be right now. I wonder, Sarah, so let's just quickly think through this, but let's call it a 10% stake for $3 billion. So you could buy the whole company for $30 billion. And there's plenty of people who could do that, you know, people on the scale of Jeff Bezos, you know, top 10 tech billionaires, people who want to throw their weight around and maybe make a point by saying we're not going to let Musk take it in a different direction uh, or take it private or, or what have you. Do you expect this to continue to escalate or do you think it's all going to die down and quiet down and go away in a few months time. Elon Musk doesn't like to de-escalate. So I do think that this fight will continue. But to your point about other billionaires coming in, remember what Bob Iger said about whether Disney would buy Twitter. Twitter comes with a lot of baggage, whether you are an individual billionaire looking for influence or you're a major media or tech company. And I think a lot of people are going to feel allergic to getting too close to it, especially to your point at the top of the show, coming ahead of the midterms. The free speech debate can get so thorny. Yeah. I don't know that too many people are going to want to challenge Musk in this. The only thing I can imagine is are other institutional investors that are backing Twitter going to try to square off with him? That, I think, is a little bit more likely. The final words. Steve? Understatement of the century. Elon Musk doesn't like to de-escalate. Um, we're not. We haven't heard the last from him on this, and it's going to be interesting to see when that passive stake starts turning active for sure. Yeah.
For sure. Uh, guys, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, our Steve Kovac and Sarah Fisher. And my next guest says this timing may actually work out perfectly for Twitter, given the upcoming midterm elections. Joining me now is Dan Clifton. He's head of policy research at Strategus Research Partners. Dan, it's good to see you. And I, I do Great. think your take is important here because this yep. Twitter is actually a platform that's come under heavy criticism from both sides of the aisle. What does Musk's involvement now mean, do you think? Yeah, so let's just look at where we are today. I mean, it's a very important platform. It's where the discussion of world events is happening every day. It's not been a great company, and they're under political fire from both the left and right for different reasons. And you can apply that to all of social media. Kelly, we've spent the last couple of weeks really trying to get to what the Republican agenda will be if they win the House of Representatives. And I have been struck by how top-tier issue going after social media, and in particular Twitter, was at that level. Okay, so energy number one, given inflation concerns, but social media number two on that list. And what that's telling you is that all this revelation out there that Hunter Biden's story was real, regardless of how you feel about it, or being bland of their their members being banned from that, they were going to push for changes. In divided government, were they going to get it? No, but no matter where these companies go, they're getting hit from the left to right. This creates a disrupting event. And I think Sarah did a very good explanation in the last segment of walking through what those business issues are and this decentralization and trying to create a different level of platform that would be open to everybody. He does not, Elon Musk does not do things on a half measure. My sense is if he's in, he's coming in to make a big change. And that may wind up inoculating them down the road if there's going to be these big political headwinds I mean, that are going to change. You know, I'm thinking about the Republic. Tesla shareholders who get nervous every yeah. time he talks about spending time on humanoid robots and other things. And now here we are talking about how much energy and time he may spend on Twitter, which, yep. you know, they might not be a huge uh, fan of, but it could come at a time when we're seeing uh, crackdowns, let's say, uh, post-midterm elections. Does this now make Twitter more of a friend to the Republicans who could end up in charge of Congress in the fall? Or are we just going to have to see how this actually changes if it does? Well, I, I think Twitter has to up its government affairs game that the fact that they're such an important medium and they have so many enemies on both sides building up against them. And, and by the way, Kelly, we don't agree on much in Washington. But we had a 21 to 1 vote on tech regulation two months ago. Right. So this whole idea of regulating the tech sector continues to get momentum. That's why the companies have to be engaged. I'm not sure the must changes will happen before the midterm election. But I think the Republicans would feel a lot easier if Trump was on the on the platform, if the president of China or Iran or whoever is also allowed on that. They find that to be very discriminatory. And that's why I think that this could be a positive change for the company itself. Final word, if you're social media companies where you say their lobbying really hasn't borne a lot of fruit here, is that just because of the problems inherent to these platforms? They're damned if they do and damned if they don't. Well, that's true. But at the same time, they're very large companies and they need to be discussing what value they provide and adjusting to that value. We have found that lobbying is an underpriced benefit in the market. Companies that do it well tend to get an earnings benefit from that. And these companies just have not done it well, and they're really going to need to up their game. In fact, you look at it, they're the largest lobbying spenders, and yet they're continually under fire. That tells you they're not getting a good return on their investment for those dollars. Which is unusual, because you guys even have an ETF now for this, I believe, SGAP. And the whole point is to show that lobbying typically pays off as better investment returns. Why are we not seeing that for social media names? Would Meta also be part of that? Yeah, Meta is the best of them all, but Google's really bad at this. And Amazon hasn't really been that good as well. 
And so what our ETF really just tries to identify large and small U.S. companies, as well as non-U.S. companies that lobby in the U.S. and get an earnings benefit. We launched this on January 25th. We've had great performance during this equity market volatility because what are those themes there? Defense, healthcare, uh, energy and mining. These are the issues that matter. And those companies really do a very good lobbying job as their issues start to come to them. And the social media companies just have not been that effective, maybe because they're newer companies. Kelly, I'll just leave you with this. There was 26% of S&P 500 companies who ranked the government as their top risk pre-financial crisis. Today, that's 52%. Wow. So you've got half the S&P 500 company saying that they see the government as the biggest risk. They need a seat at that table. And when you look at those tech companies, they're at 15 to 20% net risk. They have not caught up to what's going on on the regulatory front, and they still have ways to go before they actually get there. And even just looking at the holdings can be revealing yep. names like Match Group and Universal Music that you wouldn't typically think of. Final word, Dan, do you think that yep. Twitter will ultimately benefit in the long run if Musk pushes them towards a quote-unquote free speech approach here, or is it just going to invite further political scrutiny and pressure? Yes, and I'm not a stock analyst of Twitter, but what I would say is that you've got very sophisticated investors like Elliott Investment, now Elon Musk coming in, I think investors, very large investors, are starting to see the potential and the opportunity. It's about really being able to turn to Rubik's Cube to get the formula right. But there's at least an effort there to take that underutilized asset and turn it into something more productive. And I think that makes me a little bit optimistic about it. And maybe a reminder that so far, none of the other rivals have really chipped away at its dominance. As the shares are up almost 30 percent in the session now, we'll leave it there. Dan, thanks so much. Right. Dan you, Clifton with Strategus Research Partners. All right, coming up, the reopening stocks are flying. The travel and retail stocks have led the way since early March, and my next guest has one pick that's nearly tripled off its pandemic lows. We'll have the latest on this next. Plus, ARK Invest Kathy Wood says raising rates would be a serious mistake. Is she right? We'll ask former NEC director Larry Lindsay at the bottom of the hour. And as we head to break, here's a quick look at stocks. We see the Dow up four points, the S&P up 19, the NASDAQ up 207. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. The travel and reopening stocks have been some of the best performers in recent weeks as the market has regained its footing. The Away ETF, for instance, is up 20% since bottoming on March 7th. Shares of mall operator Simon Property also up since then, although still down from their highs in early November. So especially as all this recession talk swirls, what is the message these markets are sending right now? Let's welcome in David Bonson. He's chief investment officer at the Bonson Group. David, it's great to have you here. And um, what do you think is going on uh, with these markets these days? Well, there's uh, obviously a lot of uh, volatility around the Ukraine headlines, but in terms of the particular story that, that you're talking about, I think that there's a great value. And we bring up Simon Property because we just simply think it's one of the most misunderstood stories on Wall Street, and we're very optimistic about its forward path regardless of market skittishness. Does that optimism reflect a broader optimism in the reopening plays that would benefit from an economy that's continuing? You know, people are confused by what part of the cycle we're in right now. What part of the recovery? Does the pandemic make this similar to past cycles or not? You know, is it sort of beating to the tune of its own drum? Curious for your thoughts there. 
Yeah, I think people need to stop thinking about uh, the reopening as if we're in that COVID context. Uh, the world is reopened. I mean, obviously not all of the world, China and certain parts are still dealing with this. Anyone trying to get a restaurant reservation here in New York City knows that things are back to open, back to normal in that context. Uh, the total dining reservations are only down 1% from where they were in March of 2019. Airline travel is only down 10% from where it was in March of 19. And we all know business travel and international travel are not reflected yet. And so I think in terms of people out and about doing what they do, which for Americans generally is spend money, I think that that part of the post-COVID life is fully normalized. And does that mean that near-term recession risks are pretty minimal? Well, a, a near-term recession would not end up being a byproduct of a declining consumer, which is where a lot of people, I think, are confused. They see that 70% of the economy and the GDP metric is usually consumer activity, so they're wondering how that looks with inflation pressures and yield curve indicators. But the fact of the matter is that what we have to be concerned about going forward is business investment. This was the part that held the economic growth down post-financial crisis for years, is we weren't getting enough capital expenditures, we didn't see a lot of industrial production, manufacturing, those metrics. And I think that what we have to see is strong business reinvestment, and we can't get that until we get clarity around this monetary side. So in a lot of ways, the Fed normalizing will help hmm. produce normalization and allow normal business reinvestment to continue. I haven't heard that take, and that's interesting. I don't know if you could extend that to the market. Are there stocks that would benefit if that starts to play out? And, and how will we know? Or, or what would the, the ramifications be? Well, of course, what you and I care about most in this context, our conversation is stocks. But I will say what people would benefit from the most, Kelly, is overall economic growth. And that's what would happen if we finally got sustained business investment. The reason we don't get it is excessive indebtedness and a Fed that has continued to coddle asset markets. So if the Fed can get to some degree of normalization, I'm not saying that they will, but I really hope they will. We need a Fed funds rate higher than 0%. We need a 10-year higher than 2 or 2.5%. Two Nobody believes any growth is coming. And so people are constantly rooting for the Fed to continue giving the market morphine when what the economy needs is a lack of dependency on that morphine. All right. So you also like the financials here, um, energy. Give me some specific uh, ways you would play this. Well, I can't say enough about the Simon property story as a 5% yield and clearly one that proved they have the assets. They have a balance sheet filled with great properties. Some of those rents are going to decline and they have to repurpose. Some of it's going to be turned over altogether, but they just simply are holding a portfolio of value that is going to be monetized in the years to come. In financials, we're focused on asset managers that are fee-based businesses. Blackstone started to recover here lately. It was down earlier in the year, but Apollo is another one we still like. So everyone's talking about the banks and the yield curve. And I just think that the far more interesting story are fee-based businesses that even, are growing. Look at those asset managers. Even though you just said you, the Fed's got to stop coddling them? Well, the Fed needs to stop coddling all um, uh, aspects of capital markets. I don't think that Blackstone or Apollo need the Fed for them to go create value. They're incredible operators, real estate, credit, private equity. So we've seen a number of cycles. And ultimately, when you get zombie companies out of the way, the cream rises to the crop. I don't have any doubt that Blackstone is that cream. Very, very interesting. David, great to have your perspective today. Thank you.
Thanks, Kelly. David Bonson with the Bonson Group. Still ahead, semis are trying to break out of their own slump. Only one of the SMHETF components are positive year-to-date. But one Wall Street firm is saying there's an under-the-radar catalyst that could give the group a much-needed boost. It actually relates to what David Bonson was just talking about, and we'll tell you what it is next. Plus, shares of Starbucks are falling on Howard Schultz's first day back at the helm of the coffee chain. We'll tell you why, and it may surprise you with the stock coming off its worst quarter since the start of the pandemic. Starbucks down four and a half percent. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. The Nasdaq having a strong session here, up 217 points or one and a half percent. The S&P and Dow trying to stay into positive territory. They got about 20 points of wiggle room. Here are some of the movers we're watching. The China tech names continue to lead the Nasdaq with Pinduoduo, JD.com, Baidu, some of the biggest gainers again. The KYB ETF for those Chinese internet names up 14 percent in the past two days. That's a pretty nice month. And it's been two sessions. Apple, meantime, on track to snap a three-day losing streak. And that was after it posted its longest winning streak since 2003. Back out for some perspective, Apple is flat since January 1st. And this is the third year in a row that shares posted a slight loss in the first quarter. Netflix is higher after posting its fifth straight monthly loss and its worst quarter in a decade. The company is now reportedly asking employees to be more mindful about spending and hiring. And that, if you're wondering why the shares are up almost 6% today, well, it's fueling more speculation, including by Ben Thompson, about whether the streamer will introduce an ad-supported subscription plan. Meantime, shares of Kohl's are seeing a lot of volatility to start the year as the retailer's public battle with an activist heats up. You can see they're up 22% year-to-date in the red today. Here to get us caught up on all the latest developments of this saga is Courtney Reagan, who has been following it for us all along. Courtney? Hi, Kelly. I like your dress. Yeah, it is a saga <laughs> indeed. Today, McCallum, the activist investor in coal, sent a pretty strongly worded letter to the board asking for more details about the current evaluation of bids to take the company private, saying in part, we have never seen a corporate leadership team operate in a more defensive and insular manner when so many shareholders seem very supportive of a sale and various suitors have expressed interest. And a number of sizable shareholders have informed us that they are extremely frustrated with the board's poorly communicated process. In response, Cole says in part that the board, quote, will not allow McCallum's ill-informed commentary and push for a quick sale at any price to drive process decisions. Now, I spoke to Cole's CEO, Michelle Goss, who said the board and advisors are in the process of evaluating bids for the company thoughtfully and thoroughly, but no timeline has been set for when more details will be shared. Further, there's no guarantee that a bid will be accepted at all. It's also weighing offers against its current strategy, which Cole's believes has potential for value creation. McCallum also wants Kohl's to pre-announce its first quarter earnings ahead of the May 11th shareholder meeting, where it's putting up a full slate of 10 new board members. So I have a feeling the barbs will continue until then and maybe thereafter. Kelly? Yeah, exactly. I, I like your dress too. Uh, Courtney, thank you very much. <laughs> still had the two-year yield, still hovering above the 10-year today. My next guest says that's a sign that the bond market believes the Fed, but he wonders if the Fed will start losing credibility if inflation doesn't soon wane. Former director of the National Economic Council and former Fed governor Larry Lindsay joins me live right after this. All right, welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson, and here's your CNBC News update at this hour. The Ukrainian President Zelensky says if his country hadn't defended itself, Russia's mass killings in Bucha 
would have been everywhere, and Ukraine's foreign minister says the killings in Bucha are just the tip of the iceberg of crimes committed by the Russian army. Zelensky says the fate of Central Europe is being decided in Ukraine, and more sanctions are needed against Russia. In Sacramento, the coroner has identified the six people killed in Sunday morning's mass shooting. The three men and three women ranged in age from 21 to 57. Police are still looking for at least two shooters. On the news with Shep Smith tonight, the latest on the hunt for the suspects and why police think they opened fire. That's tonight at 7 o'clock Eastern. Meantime, in Washington, lawmakers are closing in on a $10 billion COVID aid package. This, according to multiple reports, the deal was rescued, uh, reduced, excuse me, reduced from over $15 billion after money for global vaccination efforts was cut from the legislation. Kelly, back to you. Tyler, I'll see you soon. Thank you very much. Stocks are holding on to modest gains today, but investors are all over the place when it comes to the Fed. Kathy Wood, the ARK Investment Management CEO, expressing her concerns in a tweet this weekend. Wood warning that the Fed is going to raise interest rates as growth and or inflation surprise on the low side of expectations, which will be a mistake. Is she right? Joining me now is Larry Lindsay. He is president and CEO of the Lindsay Group and former director of the National Economic Council under President George W. Bush. Larry, it's good to see you again. Welcome back. It's great to be here, Kelly. I'm going to assume that you disagree, but to, to there's many people out there who go, tell me why, if deflation was the worry going into the pandemic, why at some point we won't be back to deflation as we move through and put it all in the rearview mirror? Um, well, two reasons. Uh, the first is that we have excess demand. Uh, we are roughly balanced in terms of the demand and supply uh, through 2020. Uh, and then we passed a bill that was much too big in um, March of last year. And if you just take a look at the CPI, you can see that is exactly when inflation took off. Um, now, I do agree with half of what she said. Um, I do think we're going to have a recession probably starting next quarter. But the reason is going to be inflation. Inflation is eating into consumer spending power. They're going to have to cut back. I was going to tweet that because quite a a statement to say you think we're going into recession next quarter. Like you said, you think it's because of inflation. So you're saying it's too late for the Fed. I mean, should they still try? It sounds like they have to then still try to bring the inflation rate down. But will they risk this aggressive tightening right as real demand, like you said, is is slowing? And where does that then leave us? Kelly, it's not really aggressive tightening. I'm not calling for that. It's appropriate. We've got to get there. There has never been significant disinflation since the early 50s, Treasury Fed Accord, without the CPI being lower than the Fed funds rate. Okay, the Fed funds rate is now 50 bips. Inflation is now 8%. We are nowhere close, nowhere close to being able to control inflation with what we have. And the pressures are probably going to be that inflation is going to tick up. Um, I'm very worried about having, you know, one to one and a half monthly uh, inflation prints. That's going to push consumer purchasing power down about two points. Mm. On top of the two and a half points, it's already declined since the beginning of 2021. You can't uh, have the consumer absorb that much of a shock quickly without having a recession. 
And you've said that we need to start getting those monthly CPI increments down to like three-tenths of a percent. Like that's what to watch for if the Fed's actually going to reach the goals it wants to reach and be able to have a, a soft landing. And we're running at 3x that pace right now. So it's a lot to come down. Even Goldman, which is pretty bearish on the economy, they think, you know, we're only going to see about 1%, you know, GDP growth this year, Q4 over Q4. And they're saying they still aren't sure that's going to be enough for the Fed to hit uh, its inflation targets. Oh, oh, no. Not only do we need to have the uh, Fed funds rate above CPI, we've never had a disinflation without a recession. So you really be defying history this time if uh, if we somehow escaped without a recession and without very, very significant hikes in the Fed funds rate. Isn't this different because it's a pandemic, though, for those who say, OK, I take your point, but this cycle is different because we did have a pandemic going into it. And so, you know, we hear this from a lot of different people. We'll see the goods prices normalize. You know, we'll see things kind of drift back to normal. And intuitively, most people sense it's all going to be fine, you know, 18 months out. Inflation did not pick up until March of 2021. The pandemic started in 20, a year earlier. So I, I think that created some stresses, it created some uh, supply bottlenecks. But when you pour demand, massive amounts of demand on top of that, you can't help but have inflation. And that's what we're going through now. Um, also, and this is why it's going to be tough, the inflation is built into a wage price spiral. You can talk to any business person out there that is exactly what they're facing. Their costs are going up, their wages are going up, and their job is to maintain their margins. And that is the very definition of a wage price spiral. You've identified the fiscal spending as kind of the when inflation started to accelerate. A lot of people look at what the Fed has done quite separate from that and say that was too much. They really need to pull back more aggressively than what they're doing now. Um, so basically, is all of that stimulus impulse still now working its way through the economy? How much needs to be drained, so to speak, if we want to get things back to quote unquote normal? Well, um, yes, I think the Fed certainly printed too much. But I think of that as wood on the bonfire. We had a huge pile of wood before inflation took off. Massive. We were at 36% of GDP in terms of the Fed balance sheet. Six times normal. Still no inflation. It wasn't until we struck the match to the bonfire back in March of 2021 that inflation took off. Um, now the the fire is roaring, <laughs> so you can't really pull the wood out of the bonfire very quickly. It's be too hot to touch. Even if people have now spent their stimulus checks, even if at some point they will spend down their bank balances, I mean, just because that, you know, the fiscal side kicked off the monetary tinder that was there, will it, how will it keep going in and of itself without further fiscal stimulus? Uh, maybe we'll get some gasoline rebates or, here or something, but it seems like even the Biden budget is saying, we are shifting from, you know, fiscal largesse into something uh, more restrained. What's going to keep the momentum going is that we now have changed psychology. Or as the Fed would put it, we have um, no longer have well-anchored expectations. In fact, they're now becoming anchored higher and higher. This happened in the 70s as well. When everyone expects there to be higher inflation, it's easy to push a cost a price increase through if you're the company, and it's easier to demand a wage hike if you're a worker. Tight labor markets help that. So that is what's going to keep it going. 
Now, that is ultimately, over a long term, going to slow demand because inflation is gonna, has been outpacing wages. Mm-hmm. But remember, that is the recession that is needed to begin the process. We also have to have much higher Fed funds rates in order to break the back of the wage price spiral. Do you have any final words or parting advice for investors, Larry, who are trying to navigate this by figuring out, okay, do we want exposure to cyclicals, industrials, consumer, housing? I mean, where do you turn in this kind of environment? Well, (laughs) um, I I don't think I'm allowed to say the words buy or sell, (laughs) but I I can say that in my personal account, I am definitely short long-term bonds. I'm long uh, commodities and oil, and um, I think that's probably the safest way to play it. And that is certainly a refrain we have been hearing a lot these days. Larry, we really appreciate it. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Larry Lindsay of the Lindsay Group joining us today. Still ahead, this semi-stock is down nearly 10% over the past week, but there is a strategic shift happening within the company and within the sector that could catapult the group higher. We will reveal that right after this. Welcome back, everybody. AMD is buying cloud startup Pensando for just shy of $2 billion. Stock down about uh, 10% AMD, that is, over the past week. But the deal signifies a strategic shift for the company and one we've been seeing across the sector that could become the next catalyst for growth. Christina Partsinevelis here with the details. Christina? Thank you, Kelly. So chipmaker, like you mentioned, AMD's latest $1.9 billion acquisition will further push AMD's business, like you were alluding to, into data centers. Pensano is a cloud startup that manages how workloads move through hardware infrastructure and software stacks. And we actually had AMD's CEO on this morning, and she spoke about the company's biggest avenue for future growth. High-performance compute is the fastest-growing, the most exciting part of the um, of the industry, and we have all the components for it. So, of course, you know we we love our traditional you know PC and gaming uh, markets, but the data center is the most strategic area. So this new acquisition, Pensando, boasts enterprise customers like IBM, Oracle, Goldman Sachs, and it could potentially give AMD the opportunity to cross-sell products and expand its reach, especially when it comes to enterprise. And AMD can also better compete against the likes of Intel and NVIDIA, specifically in DPUs. That would be data processing units. So these are processors that can help a data center move data across an entire network. And pretty much is vital for everything that is going to become connected in the near future. And today we have new data that shows the semiconductor industry continues to shine. Take a look at this two-year chart. Uh, Total revenue across the entire industry was up 48% in February compared to last year during that time, with most of the drive coming from memory chip sales. Wall Street, though, Kelly, like AMD's latest purchase, we were seeing some price targets of $150, $165, meaning there could be some great upside given the stock what is trading around $108 a share right now. And, and so in many ways, this is emblematic or maybe symptomatic of companies who had one thing going really well for them during Kelly, the pandemic. Kelly, unfortunately, I have to interrupt you because the uh, there's a director in my ear, so I can't hear you at all, but I'm hoping it's a... Re- oh, now you are. Okay, go ahead. Re- re- start your question again. Yeah, just saying it's a shift from the pandemic levers that drove demand to now post-pandemic, which a lot of stocks are going through. Yeah, 
Yeah, but is this something that was real? It was triggered by the pandemic, right? Everything hmm. being connected, everything coming online, all of the uh, enterprise software, organizations that are updating their systems. These are going to be points of strength for the semiconductor space. And I know just even last week, Barclays downgraded AMD, complaining about PC sales. Well, this could potentially show how right. they're trying to mitigate through that and you know think of that long-term growth, which is the big organizations. Great point. And a result of the pandemic, great point. Christina, thank you. We appreciate it. Thank Christina you. Christina Parsonevelis. Still ahead, between the yield curve inversion and raising rates, financials are facing several cross currents right now. Some of the big banks are down as much as 7% just over the past week, while the fintech trade has actually been crushing it. My next guest has unique insight on both areas. The CEO of Cross River Bank joins me next. Welcome back to The Exchange. The yield curve remains inverted, two tenths, and it's casting a shadow on the financial industry. Big banks like Wells Fargo and B of A flat to lower in the past month during a strong market rally, while the big fintech names like Block and PayPal are up 20 to 30 percent. My next guest is a bridge between traditional finance and fintech and just announced a $620 million funding round led by Eldridge and Andreessen Horowitz. Let's bring in Gilles Gade. He is CEO of Cross River Bank. It's great to have you back, Gilles. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly, for having me on the show. I mean, Great it, to be back. Uh, yeah, it, 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 it is such an environment as well. What is the main driver of your profitability and how important are rates on the curve, relatively speaking? I, I think that, um, you know, people are starving for new product services. Um, we fell into a, an industry that was in dire need of a fresh look at how to do, you know, conduct the business of finance. And we're just there to uh, facilitate all this. Um, there are folks that figured it out. Um, they really have, they have listening ears to their consumers, to their merchants, and uh, we're just facilitating that by providing the infrastructure play behind them. What does loan growth look like these days at Cross River? It's, it's actually pretty robust. I mean, as um, you can imagine, uh, post-pandemic, everybody stayed home. They were shopping at home. Um, they all used, um, you know, folks like a firm and an upgrade and upstart and many others in order to purchase life. And, um, and that's why the, uh, the loan growth has been spectacular, particularly over the past three years. And once they're in it and they get to taste, you know, the facilitation of a loan extension uh, through um, online means, then they're staying with it. Uh, they have no reason to go, uh, you know, back to the traditional ways of shopping. Are these primarily consumers, or we know you guys sort of came on the scene in a big way with the PPP loans. Are these a lot of small businesses? Who, what's the mix? Yeah, it's, it's predominantly consumers. That's what we focus on. Uh, but we are slowly but surely transitioning as well and trying to diversify our revenue, uh, our growth, as well as our revenue channels uh, towards the small business arena, particularly like you rightfully said, uh, PPP put us on a map with a lot of small businesses that we managed to, to help get bailed out, um, you know, to the tune of about half a million. Um, so these have um, a way of saying thank you by coming back to us and saying, is there anything else that you can do for us? And uh, we want to be there and answer the call when, yeah. uh, when they need it. So let me go back to the consumer piece, since that is the lion's share for you. Maybe you can give us some insight into credit quality, sustainability of consumer spending. Uh, there's a lot of confusion in the market because traditional retail, the good side is slowing, the housing side is obviously slowing, and yet services may be taking off. What's going on with the consumer balance sheet? I, I think that, um, um, honestly, post 
um, banking tobacco in 2008, there is one thing that the regulatory environment did very well, is to impose the concept of affordability to credit. And now, you know, fast forward some 14 years, um, we're in the midst of a definitely a financing boom, and people have learn these lessons in order to extend a loan only if the consumer can afford it. Uh, the thing is that with data analytics, um, there's a way to extend a loan to folks that did not have access to credit previously, and that has definitely broadened the credit spectrum. So there's a confluence of events here. Number one, like I said, Affordability to credit is critical in order to extend that credit to folks. And number two, data analytics enhance or broaden that credit spectrum uh, to provide it to more people. But would you say you have any concerns about the macro environment? You know, do you think that the growth of the spending that we've seen is sustainable? Listen, I, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, I'm not an economist. I just uh, react to uh, the market. We're very adaptable and nimble, and we stay uh, within our lanes. Um, what we do know well is that if our consumers need something, we're there for them. Um, so we can only uh, compose with the changes. We're not, uh, you know, one of the big four banks in the country, um, but we definitely benefit from um, a host of consumers that do need a, um, a refreshing um, outlook on how to conduct their financial life, and um, and that's uh, that's what we hear. Yeah, um, it's it's a little difficult for me to opine on your question. Sorry. No, I, I listen. I'd rather have you, you know, not t uh, take a guess than than guess. You know, I guess my last question would be: Where do you hope to be? Especially, you raised almost half a billion dollars. Where do you hope to be business wise a year from now? So um, just continuing to provide and cater to the consumer aspirations. I mean, that's really critical. Um, at the end of the day, the consumers will need to, themselves to be more nimble, uh, to have the ability to access financial products in order for them to save, to uh, invest better, uh, so that they can continue to afford life. As we know, life is becoming more expensive by the day. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where we come in with our partners, uh, because we have always continuously the uh, intent to innovate, innovate not only in technology, but also in processes and in, in consumers' aspirations. So yeah. that's... That's where we come in. Well, continuing to afford life would be like a good catchphrase, I think, for this year. Uh, and hopefully, well, maybe not next. Gilles, thanks again. We really appreciate it. And congrats. Thank you. Gilles Gate is the CEO of Cross River Bank. Still ahead, Howard Schultz planning to return, or I should say, returning today to Starbucks as interim CEO. And he's making a big splash on his first day. The shares are down 4.5% as a result. We'll tell you what is behind the downturn next. As we head to break, let's take a quick check on the markets with the Dow clinging on to a 22-point gain, similar for the S&P. The Nasdaq still up 1.5%. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. Howard Schultz is back as interim CEO at Starbucks, and he kicked off his first day with a huge announcement, suspending the company's stock buyback program. The shares are down 4.5%. As a result, let's get to Kate Rogers for the latest. Kate? Kelly, you said it. Howard Schultz back as interim CEO starting today, and investors are reacting negatively to his first move in suspending the company's buyback program effective immediately. Starbucks says it'll invest that money into cafes and workers, but didn't provide specifics on what that looks like. And as you mentioned, the stock down by more than 4%. Schultz is expected to host a town hall with employees in the next hour, and he's already sent out a letter to Starbucks partners this morning that said in part, quote, our company, like many companies, is facing new realities in a changed world. Pinch supply 
supply change, the decimation caused by COVID, heightened tensions and political unrest, a racial reckoning, and a rising generation which seeks a new accountability for business. The union says Schultz is taking a good cop, bad cop approach and is broadly trying to prevent it from organizing. Starbucks Workers United notching a major win just last week in organizing its ninth store, the New York City Starbucks Reserve Roastery. More than 160 stores in 27 states have now petitioned the NLRB to seek union votes and they've lost only one so far. Beyond the union fight, Schultz is returning to a Starbucks that looks quite different than the one he left. The way consumers want to interact with the brand has shifted with digital drive through and mobile ordering front and center. Inflation and COVID continue to challenge major markets like China. And not to mention the stock is struggling down about 20% in the last six months. Kelly? You know, it, it really made my my jaw drop because buyback programs have been such a key part of stock performance really for the last decade, for the last couple of expansions for this market. So this is absolutely something to watch. How much should we attribute? And the factors he cites, Kate, are pretty broadly shared amongst corporate America. So maybe the unionization is a little bit more specific to them. How much do you think that was a direct catalyst here? Well, it remains to be seen, Kelly, because you have to remember, Starbucks did announce last fall that it was going to be already raising pay for workers, reaching at least a median of about $15 an hour. Coming up this summer, the union kind of reacted to that and said, this is about more than just money, right? This is about benefits. This is about the culture in the cafes. This is about better training for workers. So I'll be curious to see what they do with this money and what the union actually responds uh, and if they're happy about it or not in the end. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is one we should all watch very, very closely, Kate. Thank you. We appreciate our Thank Kate you. Rogers reporting. All right. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place.